I want to show you a pretty cool slide that we put together uh, in the office this week um, about missionaries. If we could throw that up, Nancy. And just everybody, uh, just so you know, we are uh, in the process. We're almost done with our renovation, but we've got tech issues. We got a new soundboard. We're still working all this out. So just be patient with us over the next couple of weeks as we try to get this room almost done. Here you have people that have left this church, that have left Menham Hills Community Church, that sat in the brown chairs, just like you and I have. They are actually out, gone, missing from our community because they have followed the call of God out to some place in the world to serve him there. These are incredible stories. I mean, this is something, honestly, we've gotten right at Menham Hills. This is really not going well with this mic, is it? I'll keep trying. Eventually, I'm going to quit and just yell because it's second service. I can lose my voice. But we... Uh, we have sent these folks out. I mean, you guys remember Tony, right? In the top right-hand corner, Tony was our worship leader. Tony's out, Tony's out in Chicago, working in, in ministry in Chicago. And, and then you've got Brian and Michelle over here on the far corner. They're over in Africa as missionaries with the Christian Missionary Alliance. Uh, you've got Juliana, much more here, right? She's, she's been serving in the Dominican Republic. Um, we could go around, Lisa Jurdy and, and Marcos Marti, you know, Lisa does college ministry, and, and Marcos Marti and his wife, they're, they're, they're trying to do church planning in Jersey, or Jersey City. Um, Tim and Rachel, right, we said they were our youth pastors, and Dave Bowl is up in the top. I won't go through the whole list of them, but these are all people that took the call of, of, of God seriously in this place. God really has done a pretty cool thing in our church, and he has sent missionaries out of this church like crazy. Uh, I get, pastors ask me all the time, like, how did you do this? How did you, you know, because of what we do all over the world with Guatemala, I'm like, dude, I didn't do anything. Like, you know, God just has shown favor in this area. So, I, you know, I keep thinking of Drew, right, who just quit his job, and he's off in Africa teaching, living in a hut, teaching math to kids so he can talk to them about Jesus. So, I well, Tim's going to keep working on it. So, you know, it's not just them that are missionaries. You guys are missionaries. Some of you are missionaries in Dover, where we have ministries to the homeless and the broken and the needy. Some of you are missionaries in Market Street Mission in Mendham. You know, some of, some of the folks in our church have been going down there every Tuesday night to lead a Bible study for years, week after week, driving 45 minutes each way just to be a missionary. Some of you have gone to Guatemala just to be a missionary. Some of you have gone once, some of you have gone 10 times to a garbage dump just to be a missionary. Some of you have fed our missions budget like crazy over the years so that we could do these crazy things. And God has met us in, in these ways. The Christian Missionary Alliance, our denomination, whenever I tell somebody, a neighbor, oh, what kind of church is it? I say, oh, Christian Missionary Alliance. Was that a cult? <laughs> And the reason you don't know much about Christian Missionary Alliance was it was never meant to be a denomination. It was meant to be a group of Christians that felt so passionately about Christ's call to reach the world with the truth of who God is that they would meet and, and figure out ways to send the gospel overseas. The Christian Missionary Alliance is ten times bigger overseas than it is here. You walk around third world countries, they know what the CMA is. Part of being a pastor in the CMA church, and ours is one of the larger churches in our, our district, is they called me a couple years ago and they said, John, we want to take you to show you how we, how we reach the world, what the CMA model is for reaching the world. And I said, that's cool. Where are we going? And they said, we're going to take you to Mali, Africa. And I said, wow, that sounds kind of exotic. 
And uh, Tim Meyer and Rachel were serving in France as missionaries there in Paris. And they said, first, we're going to stop and see Rachel and Tim for a couple days. And I'm going, oh, this is awesome. I'm going to Paris. Maybe I'll take Joan, right? And then, uh, then they said, then we're going to go to Mali, but it's going to be like deep into like the jungles in Africa. We're probably going to be staying in some places that don't have water. And, you know, I was like, that's kind of sexy in a way. It's a great story to come home and tell everybody. Like, I was in the jungle in Africa for Christ. So I was pretty pumped up about this. And then Al-Qaeda had to go and ruin everything on me. Go into Mali and, 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 and cause disruption, and the trip got canceled, and so that was a bummer. And then last year, they started talking about, you know, maybe, John, this is the year we're going to take you to Jordan. But, John, we've got to be careful in Jordan because, you know, there's a lot of threats to the gospel. So our work is very underground. You know, it's kind of, we, we, we can't be public with what we're doing. We really can't tell you. And I'm going, I'm like a Christian CIA guy. This is going to be awesome, right? But then, I can't remember, I was trying to think this morning, I don't know what canceled that trip. I know one of the things was Joan fell and got hurt last year, so that was part of the decision of that wasn't going to work that, this year. So they called me this year and they said, John, you've got to go on one of these trips. I, we can't have you pastoring this big church and not going on these trips. So I said, okay, great, I'll go on the next trip. Where is it? What, what exotic uh, land, what dream place do you have to take me to? And they go, we're going to take you to Paraguay. See, that was my exa- reaction, exactly, right? Just... What? Paraguay? Where's Paraguay? Who would want to go to Paraguay? Now, having gone to Paraguay a couple of months ago, I returned and I asked the same question. Who would want to go to Paraguay? <laughs> Paraguay is a, uh, is a landlocked country in South America that I visited uh, for about a week a few months ago. And uh, I, I think God wants our church to do something in Paraguay. I know that sounds like a bold statement. I don't often get up here and say, God wants us to do this. But look, you know... It, the last place I wanted to go to was Paraguay, and yet I feel like that, that's where God dropped me. And uh, you're about to meet someone from Paraguay that I've, I've grown pretty close to, and even my family as he's been staying with us the last few days. I got dropped in Paraguay, and here's what I found. You tend to think of missionaries, right, as these, like, real holy guys, kind of the gray beard, the, the shawl, and they're real wise, and they're, they're trying to figure out ways to get into the community, and they're so much, so much different, so different than you. And they're part of a big machine that's producing disciples. And when I got down to Paraguay, you know what I found? I found four young families with, that were just like me, with little kids running around, living in houses with big concrete walls around them, by themselves, trying to reach a very unreached people with the good news of Christ. And I said, like, where's all, where's all the stuff you're doing? Like, where's all the, the mechanism behind you? Where's the machinery that's driving this? And they looked around and said, you're looking at it. It's, it's us, us, eight of us and these kids. And uh, I think what God was saying to me is, this place can help that place. These families, these beautiful young families, need these families in Mendham that have knowledge, talent, skills, finances to reach that place through these four families that are giving their lives away. So my goal is to begin to start an embryonic group of folks within our church that would partner with these missionaries in Paraguay, these beautiful four families with these young kids. If God is calling our church, I would guess he's probably speaking to a couple of you about this, saying, you know, I've been kind of waiting for a place for me to to pour my life into. Maybe this is it, and maybe it is, and I would like to talk to you. And so would my friend Forrest after church. 
My goal is to start a ministry where our church partners with these four families to change a country. It happens, and I think God is going to do it through you and with you. So here's what we're going to do. Today is Mission Sunday at Menem. We have one once a year. And the point of Mission Sunday is to introduce you to what the Christian Missionary Alliance is doing around the world, how they do it. I just told you a little bit about that. But it's to kind of get you fired up about missions. And what we've traditionally done is the only time we ever talk about money in terms of giving money and how much money are you going to give. If you're visiting, please check out of the conversation at this point. This is just kind of family business right now. But we say, would you let us know what we could give the missionaries? Because I need to let, you know, Juliana know how much I can sponsor her with this year. And the only way we knew how to do that was to ask folks in our church, how much would you give towards missions? But what we've noticed about the culture over the last bunch of years is every year we put what we call these faith promise cards out, and every year less of them come back. Missions money still comes in like crazy, but the promise cards don't come back. So what we wound up doing over the last few years was cutting missionary support and at the end of the year finding out we had money that we could have funded the missionaries with. So this year we're going to, I'm not going to ask you for a, a faith promise this year. I'm going to ask you to give to mission as part of your normal giving here at Menham Hills. So that means if you write a check, you should designate a portion of your check towards mission in the memo column. That means if you, if you have giving envelopes, there's a little missions check on there. You should give every week a portion of your giving towards what our friends are doing around the world. And that's how we're going to do the faith promises this year. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do a split sermon. Not only are you going to get one sermon, you lucky dogs, you're going to get two for the price of one. I should take up another collection, I think, based on that. So we're going to, uh, we're going to have a, a friend of mine that, I, that I've come to know and, and care about. And this guy has the sweetest, cutest family you've ever seen. And uh, I got to spend some time at his house with him and his kids. And now he's been up here at my house, and he spent the weekend here with us at Menham Hills. I dragged him all over New York City yesterday. It was fun. Now, if you're like me and what my kids expected, a Paraguayan missionary, right, you're thinking of kind of a short, portly man, you know, balding, Dark skin, right? Because he's got to fit in with the Paraguayans. So I would like to introduce you to my friend, Forrest, uh, the Paraguayan missionary. Come on up here, Forrest. Welcome him up to the front, would you? So I, I, every time I go out with Forrest, like I'll be standing in line at a coffee shop, and I find myself talking to him like this. And I'm always going, dude, you must stick out in Paraguay like a you know, giraffe walking around in the zoo. But uh, I have grown to care very deeply for him and his family that is giving their lives away to reach these people in Paraguay. I'm hoping you will too. So he's going to share a little bit about what he does and why he does it, and then I'm going to get up and connect it to reason for God, and then you're going to go home and watch the Cowboys beat the Giants tonight. <laughs> I'll be there for that one, so nobody text me, please. I'm turning my phone off. Um, but before we start, I, I, we want to show you a little, a little video that gives you a, an idea about the Christian Mission Alliance and about missions. Hi, I'm Christian. I never thought I'd be involved in missions work someday. I thought that stuff was best left to the professionals. I'm from America, and in my town, there was a church on practically every corner. I had no reason to think it wasn't like that everywhere else in the world. It wasn't until I took a short-term missions trip with Envision that I realized that not everybody has the same kind of access to the gospel as we are privileged to have. 
It didn't take long for me to fall in love with the place, the music, the food, the culture, especially the people. They were a lot like you and me. They had plans for the future. They valued family and education and having a good time. But I couldn't help but notice the overwhelming need. I can't explain to you the brokenness I saw all around me. There was the physical poverty of contaminated drinking water and malnutrition, but there was also the spiritual poverty of having absolutely no hope. I was shaken to my core. If you were to knock on doors in the U.S., it would take about six tries before someone answered who could tell you how to have a relationship with Jesus. In places like postmodern Europe, that number is closer to one in 500 doors. In parts of the world where there is no access to the gospel, it's a staggering one in 30,000 doors. I began to realize that I had taken my privileged access to the gospel for granted. I'd never even thought about this access divide that I had just witnessed and was feeling more and more compelled to bring this access to the people who were lost without it. Lost in the system of religion that binds people into submission. Lost in the discord of deities and idols. Lost in a belief that we are alone in this world. That human enlightenment is the path to truth and that our own works will determine whether we get to go to heaven or not. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, how can people call for help if they don't know who to trust? And how can they know who to trust if they haven't heard of the one who can be trusted? And how can they hear if nobody tells them? And how is anyone going to tell them unless someone is sent to do it? I mean, what would this place be like if Jesus' name could be declared publicly? What if these people truly understood what he did for them and why he did it? That was it for me. I was so overwhelmed by the grace I received from my own salvation, I knew I had to share the same grace with those who didn't have any access to it. Many of us share the call to send workers into the harvest field, but my family and I were called to go. We left our friends and family and careers, and now we're in a language study in a country where it's not exactly safe to talk about Jesus openly. That is, until we first earn the trust of those around us. We are doing much more than declaring the gospel message. We're living it out through our actions by serving our adopted community. Otherwise, we can't speak in ways they'll really hear us. We spend our time building friendships with our neighbors so that they might start asking about the reason for our hope. And of course, we'll be happy to tell them. So here we are. And you know, there are many others in the Alliance who are willing to answer the call, just like us to create access to the gospel in places where Jesus' name is not known. I'm Christian, and this is my story. As I mentioned in the first service, we were singing a song uh, about my one defense, my righteousness, and it made me think about how Christian that song is, uh, and it's true. But if you can imagine that at the end of our life, uh, we're standing before God's throne and it's judgment time. And you can see me like this. I'm looking up into the bright lights of God. And, and, he, and it's before him, he brings down the verdict. You go to the right or you go to the left. Um, and, and it's a tough thing because we're, we're talking about the issue of, of hell today. But it's, it's God looking down at his children and he's having to send 
his loving people that, that he created his creation into an eternity without him. And this is our issue is that, that non-believers are, are standing before, or will stand before God or are currently standing before God in judgment without a defense. And we know that Jesus Christ is our one defense and he steps on to the stage and he says, yeah, I, I died for this man or I died for this woman. But there's many people uh, in Paraguay uh, that don't have any defense. And when they die, they'll go before the throne and, and they'll be judged. Uh, a lot of your coworkers that you work with, your families, your neighbors, will experience the same kind of thing. And so today I just want to, to speak to your hearts and to encourage you on how you live your lives. My, uh, my granddad died when I was in, in high school. And so my granddad never really saw what I did with my life or what I'm doing with my life. And so I, I don't know what heaven will be like. I imagine that heaven will be nice and green, uh, you know, like green, sweet home Alabama. I'm from Alabama. So, you know, the sweet, it's a sweet little down, we'll go underneath the oak tree there. And he loved gardening. So I imagine he'll find a little place to sit down and talk about my life and ask me, Forrest, what did you do with your days? How did you spend your days? Did you leave the place better? Then you, well, you got it. That was a common phrase that I always heard growing up. Did you leave it better than the way you received it? And so uh, I'm able to choose how I, I spend my days. And I imagine that, that many of you can choose how you spend your days. You spend how you, you work. You spend where you live. You're able to choose where you vacation, where you donate your time. But there's many people in this world that can't choose because their decision has been chosen for them where they'll live due to sickness or because of lack of education or their government, uh, their days have been assigned to them. But God is asking us and expecting us to go and make a difference in the world. Uh, and so I know that a lot of you are in ministry. Uh, it's a great to see. It's great to see people in the front rows. I love this. Normally in the churches that I'm at, everyone's sitting in the back. But when you have less chairs, you have to, you're forced to sit up front, I guess. So thank you for being here. You're, you're special people. Uh, you didn't choose this seed, but that <laughs> it was chosen for you. Um, so today, I want to explain how I'm spending my days really briefly, and I want to encourage you how you want to spend your days. Uh, about uh, 4,100 days ago, my wife and I decided to become missionaries. Uh, we took this little guy, uh, Caleb. Uh, we went to Costa Rica, and we spent a year there learning the language. And we had given up our home, which was an easy thing to give up. We sold that. God blessed us financially in buying a home. So when we sold it, it was just giving it back to him again. Uh, as well, we gave up our ministries and our, our jobs. Uh, my wife gave up her teaching job. I gave up my job in our church. And those were the hard things to give up. Uh, we gave up our dog, and that was easy. Uh, it was a Shih Tzu Terrier, and I was happy to give that thing. I took that away. I was like, here, Lord, here's an offering to you, my, <laughs> my Shih Tzu Terrier. Um, but anyway, that was an easy one. Sometimes there are easy decisions. Sometimes there are hard decisions when you choose to follow God. So that was an easy one, the dog. Um, and even going overseas to Paraguay, I think, was, a really, was, an, was an easy thing for us because we saw the need. Uh, we had good health. We had no longer had uh, school debt from college. Uh, and uh, we wanted to live out our life, maybe in a way, write out a story of our life for when our kids read about uh, our life. And I'm not 
publishing a book, but you know, in, in the idea that when our kids look at our life and say, wow, dad, wow, mom, I wanna live like that. It was living a life that challenged our kids and how they live their life. And, and so that was our desire. And so that's why we went there. So for the past 3,000 days, uh, last eight years, we've been spending uh, our days building up uh, churches, building up believers around us. If there's a passage, I don't know if you saw this in the passage from Moses. He writes in Psalms 90, God teaches to count our days. We have 70, 80 years at best, but help us to count our days. And that's what I want for you guys to be thinking of this. How can you count your days? How can you spend your days? And over time, I, I realized that um, we need to make, make some changes. Uh, we were doing good things. I'm really good at doing good deeds in the community. I get into the community. We're able to do some great things. I'm able to teach the Bible stories and Bible lessons pretty well. But when I, I realized that we need to go beyond that because the mission says, Forrest, you're not going to be here for the next 25 years. You're not going to retire here. Think of something bigger and go beyond that. And so we began building disciples, Christ followers who build Christ followers. And if you could head on the next slide, my two verses that I have here. I want to give you two verses. You've read them before, but here they are again. In Hebrews, let us think of ways to motivate. In, in the, uh, the Greek, it's to spur on, it's to elbow someone to action. Uh, motivate others to acts of love and to good works. It doesn't say just go do good things. Now, the Bible does say that. But the point here is that it's not even just going and do something good, but it's encouraging others to do something good. In the same way as uh, Paul is telling Timothy, now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Uh, here's a free one for your parents. Parents, you're not raising children. You're raising future parents. And so it makes us think differently when we're, when we're forming disciples. When you're ministering in Guatemala, you're not just ministering to the Guatemalans here, but you're ministering, you're ministering to people that will continue to minister, to continue to pay it forward. And so this ch changed a lot of our, our ministry. We had been working in some really lower-income churches, and it's tough because you have the needs of the poor and you have the rich who have everything. And who do you work with? It's a tough task. So over time, we have I've done a little less work in working with our poor, or the poorest of the poor in Paraguay, because we know that and soon we're going to have to get out and move on to other places, go to other countries. And we made a tough call of who to spend time with, who to disciple, because you have several people that want to be discipled, but you can't just take everyone. And that sounds really bad, but when you're four couples, uh, it's, it's a tough decision and because both need God. Both are going to live their life and then go into an eternity without him. And so we made a decision uh, in our newest work. We started two years ago to begin working with the middle upper class with the idea that this is a, a group of people that will be able to make Christ followers, that can make Christ followers, build churches that would be able to uh, plant other churches after we leave because we have a, a date when we're all leaving probably I don't know the date but one day the, the upper people know they're going to send us home this has happened all around the world when the job gets finished they send you home and they send you to another country and we know that 
but how are we going to leave the place when we're done? And so our desire has been to plant churches that will be able to financially support uh, the other churches that they are able to plant. The problem is, is that poor churches can't plant churches really financially. They can't even afford their rent, often their pastor. And so we're looking at different ways to be able to, to reach into segments of society and plant these seeds of looking after the lower classes. And after we leave, they will continue the work and they will have a heart and a burden for some of our poor churches. And so our current church is a church that works with, um, they, they are lawyers and doctors, uh, school teachers, uh, people like yourselves, people like the people that you work with. So if you guys, if anyone understands who I'm ministering to, it would be you guys. You would understand the great need for your coworkers because they're just like the poor person or the middle class. The upper middle class or the upper class just knows how to cover it up better. They know how to fake it better. We all know how to fake it better. But we're just as broken as this person. We just know how to make ourselves look good because we can dress nice or we can get cosmetic work done. Yeah, and this person can't. But we're just faking it more. We're broken people. And I want just to encourage you guys to continue thinking along these lines. What is God calling you? How is God calling you to do ministry? Uh, we were just doing some dreaming the other night, and I mentioned to some of the elders and leaders that came over to the pastor's house ways that you can do this. If you throw my picture, of friend, uh, picture of my friend Marcos, Marcos and his wife Lorena are. Uh, he's the VP uh, of our denomination in Paraguay. He and I did a church plant together uh, early on in our ministry there. He's a visionary person. Nor Paraguayans live day to day. That means they go shopping for their food each day because they have a small amount of money, so they just go buy what they can buy for that day. But that affects their vision because they're not thinking about next week. They're not thinking about next year. But we're coming alongside people like Marcos who's able to think about what God wants us to do next year in this next decade. Uh, and Marcos is ministering into our public schools. In our public schools in Paraguay, we're able to go and talk openly about Jesus Christ. And until that door closes, we're going to keep hitting that because that is, that is just a, a great harvest uh, waiting to be really harvested, waiting to be reached. And so I wanted to encourage us to think of ways that how we can partner with Marcos in setting up an after-school program because it's walking distance from his church, several high schools. He's ministering there, teaching ethics and morals, and for a, to set up a, a storefront for him to be able to invite these kids to come and play pool and ping pong, to have discussion groups, to talk about life. Uh, because many times... Uh, our people that are, we're ministering to have never been in an evangelical church before. And so coming in Sunday morning would be really tough. But walking into a, a building where you feel comfortable uh, is, is a way that we can reach this generation uh, for Christ. And so long after we're gone, uh, we're going to be able to continue to get emails and videos coming out of Paraguay of what God has done. Because God has done this in other countries. Countries that we went into 100 years ago. Now, like the Philippines and Chile, now are sending out missionaries to other countries. And I, I work with a few Chilean missionaries that they, they came to Christ under the CMA in Chile. Now they're going out as missionaries. And we desire one day that Paraguayans will go out to the nations. And that's what, that's what gets us excited. 
I want to be known as a person that empowers others, that empowers Paraguayans to go, go the distance, to continue to work, because they have been beaten down, uh, and we don't have time to talk about why Paraguayans are so uh, downtrodden. Uh, Pastor John said he didn't want to go to Paraguay. Um, I understand that. Sometimes missionaries, uh, when they want to, the CMA wants to send them out, uh, they get to go, they get a, a vision trip, and they go visit the country before they go there. We need to stop that in Paraguay because everyone that's visited hasn't wanted to come back. <laughs> yeah, it's like the least sexy place, uh, country. Uh, the work is just, you know, it's tough. Uh, we've lost a lot of colleagues. I lost a lot of missionary friends on the battlegrounds because of uh, fighting the stresses of the country, uh, moral failures. And so it's been a tough place. Uh, but God is at work. And even though it looks like things aren't going well at times, God is at work and he's planting these seeds and we expect a harvest. Um, and just as I close, um, what is God asking? How is God asking us to finish our days, to spend our days? Uh, if you were to write a book or someone to write a book about you, what would the chapter headings be in your book? And, and as well, how many chapters would be dedicated to certain things in life? How many chapters would be dedicated to work or dedicated to ministry or dedicated to children or dedicated to vacation or dedicated to the couch or TV or whatever? Think about that. Is if you're if they're writing that book, what do we expect our kids or grandkids to read about our life, our legacy that we're leaving behind? And I want to encourage you to think of these things in these days. Because we have a certain amount of days and God expects us to use them because I expect when we get to heaven, us to have a conversation with God and God say, hey, how did you, you know, how did you use those days? And God sees it all. He knows what's going on. But there's an accountability on the things and the gifting that God has given us, the resources that God has given us. And so God's going to say, hey, Forrest, what'd you do down there? And I gave you all this talent or, or these abilities or I gave you that nice job. What'd you do with it? And I, and I hope and I pray that we can all say, yeah, God, I did this for you. I worshiped you in this. I spent my days, I burned out for you in this manner. I gave it all. I, I left it all on the field. I left it all on the playing field. So, Pastor, if you want to come on up. I have some uh, prayer cards in the lobby. Just as a contact point, uh, Facebook, uh, email. Oh, this is going to get a, a continual conversation that we want to have Talking about Paraguay, I'd like to send a few spies to Paraguay. Uh, let you guys come down and see what it looks like there. Then to come back and report. And hopefully those people will, will be caught. Their hearts will be, I guess, really burdened for what's, uh, what's happening in Paraguay. Because I see the burden that you guys have for um, Guatemala. It's evident in so many ways. And I think that we can do, just repeat the same thing, the same kind of passion uh, in Paraguay. So, Pastor Thanks. First of all, thank him, would you? As he give his family gives his life away. Um, I want to let God do this work. I believe God is calling. Maybe he's calling. You know, look, I sound like one of those televangelists. I believe God is calling a few of you. Uh, I think God, may, look, maybe there's four families that are, that are here at Mendham that need to pair up with these four families and help them and be, be the, the arm into Mendham Hills. 
Um, they need children's ministry workers. They need um, construction workers. They need, maybe more than anything, business professionals. Uh, fascinating. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks and months. Uh, my desire is to put a team together that would go down there and start working on this. So if you are interested in this, you maybe feel God going, that should, you should talk about that. Come talk to Forrest or me after the service today, and let's pray for him, can we? Lord, uh, again, I bring this, this brother in Christ to you that loves you, that is giving, that is giving all that he has to you. Uh, and Lord, I, I pray for two things Forrest made me aware of over these coming or last couple of days here, that, uh, that the culture, because of the downtrodden nature of the culture, because of the, the, the over-sexualized nature of the culture, Lord, that his children face tremendous um, risks, threats by, by that culture. Lord, we pray that you would guard them, guide them, hem them in, protect them, watch over them, Lord. Protect their minds and their hearts, Lord. And Father, for this ministry is these four families who've got, this, who've got this thing up to a few hundred people, eight churches. God, we are just praying over them and with them that you would just work in a crazy, mighty way through these families, through the partnerships here at Mendham Hills, that one day, and maybe not a day too far off, Forrest calls me and says, I just got a call from the district office. Our work here is done. These churches are up and running and they're sending out missionaries. So come in Paraguay. Come in Mendham. In Jesus' name, amen. One more time for Forrest. He's a good man. Um, he's going to be hanging out after service if you want to talk to him a little bit. So today, I, I'm going to end this service with... Uh, an answer to the last question. We've been going through these questions on um, Reason for God, book by Tim Keller. The book is called, titled Reason for God, so we weren't all that creative in what we came up with for the title. But uh, what we did was we took the first bunch of uh, chapters and we, we looked at the hard questions that our friends ask us about Christianity. Uh, I'm going to be going to that giant cowboy game tonight, and I'm going to be at, at, at a tailgate. And, you know, these questions come up. A lot of times they come up after a couple cocktails at a tailgate, but... They ask hard questions, our friends. And, and the scripture says that we should be able to come, come back with good answers. Not just, you know, uh, not, not be uninformed about what we believe. Even if the good answer, even if the right answer sometimes is, I, I don't know. So I'm going to ask you today's question because it has to do with why Forrest is here. Here's the question. If this God that you talk about all the time, if he's this God of love... How is it that an eternal God that loves could send people to hell for eternity? Put more personally, and I've had people say this to me, I can't believe in a God that would send people I love and I know to hell. I can't believe it, and I won't believe it. I mean, that's a pretty good question, Right? I like him. That's a future, that's a future amen or in the back coming. You see, Forrest and his team, these four families with these cute kids, they're on a mission. That's why they're called missionaries. See, they're battling an enemy 
that has taken people captive. They are in a war that they are engaging in for people's souls. They're, they're fighting for lives both now because, because Christianity isn't only about eternity. It's about the best way to live right now. It's about to have real life and abundant life right now. But it's also about how we spend forever with God or away from God. And here, here's my fear maybe as, as pastor of beautiful Menham Hills Community Church set in the rolling hills of Morris County, New Jersey. Forrest came in here Friday and we stopped on the way home from the airport. I took him to Newark. I got him an Italian hot dog and I drove him over here. And uh, he came in and he's like, dude, this place is beautiful. And he got out his phone. He was taking pictures of all our new stuff. And my fear, as kind of the pastor here at Mendham Hills, is that we can get ourselves so caught up in, in, in things like three steps to a better marriage and five steps to financial freedom. I have people that say to me, I'm going to bring my kids to your church because they need to know some morals. And I want to do those things. I hope we're good at them. But what I fear is that we spend all of our time on those things, and they become our primary purpose, and we abandon our mission. We abandon the mission of Forrest. We abandon the mission of Jesus, the first missionary, and we become a very self-focused people, a people who become dangerously close to becoming casualties in a war that we didn't even know we were fighting. You see, as a community, as a church, we don't just come here to, to worship together, but we, we come, in a sense, and we huddle on Sundays, and the goal is to execute a play on Monday. Nobody watches the football game I'm going to be at tonight and goes, boy, those cowboys, they huddle really good. You see that huddle? Put on a nice huddle. The deal is what you do in executing the play, because there is a war afoot, and we're called into the fray. And at the end of the day, what's at stake here for us and for those that we're called to reach is life now and it's life forever. Now look, if you come to Menham, please tell your friends that are here visiting today, John doesn't normally talk about hell. But I can't be the pastor in town that never talks about hell either. Because I'm normally a pretty positive guy. I, I want to talk about light and life and, and, and what Christ is, is doing in our lives and through us and with us and the changes that can be made. But I also can't, I can't 52 weeks a year not speak to you about the very real warnings and the very real truth about this place that the scripture identifies is a destiny for many of us apart from God, a word, and it conjures up fear for us. That's why we want to talk it. Hell. Now, we're going to talk about this for a few minutes this morning, but as we talk about it, two things. You need to enter into a discussion about hell fearfully, reverently, carefully, with a sense of seriousness about the topic. Speaking with someone this week, and they perceive themselves as a good Christian person. They, they, they don't go to our church, outside of our church. And uh, said, what are you talking about at church this week? And I said, hell. Oh, thank God. Finally, a pastor that wants to talk about hell. Everybody else doesn't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. So I wasn't like, yeah, thank God I get to tell them about hell. And, and I guess what bothered me a little bit is sometimes I feel like the Christian community, when it communicates hell... 
it communicates uh, like a people that, are, uh, that say to people, I'm on the inside and you're on the outside. And unless you start to believe what I believe, unless you start to think like I think, unless I win, unless I'm right, you lose, you're out. And it just bothers me because that, this, is, this is serious. There's a pretty famous Christian guy, two, two three years ago, he wrote a book about hell. And he essentially said, I, don't, I think that at the end there might not be hell, that God might win, that love might win, and nobody would go to hell. Now, theologically, I want you to know I've read that book and I've read a lot of commentaries. And I can't get where he is. And no re really, no serious theologian has come to that conclusion. But what bothered me more than anything else was so many of the Christians got up in arms and just, this guy, they, it was like they wanted him to be wrong. I hope he's right. But I have to talk to you about hell. Now this Jesus that we follow, this Jesus that, whose name we claim, this Jesus that we tell the town we, we want them to know about, this same Jesus, more than any person in the Bible, this sweet, soft, all-loving Jesus, this sage, that, you know, this person, if I went into the green of Morristown, everybody would go, oh, yes, Jesus, very good man. Do you know who spoke more about hell than anybody in the whole Bible? Jesus. Let me show you a couple of examples. We'll start with, uh, just so you can get a feel for what Jesus is saying. Because it, it's hard to come to, to any other conclusion that, that Jesus is giving dire warnings about this because he cares. Matthew 5.22, anyone, Jesus says, who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire, fire of hell. Matthew 5.29, here's how serious hell is. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Matthew 10, 28. Don't be afraid of those who could kill the body. Well, you're so afraid of that, people. But, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who could destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else, this loving Jesus. And he is loving. That's why he talks about it. That's why he warns about it. And he talks about it 12 times. In 12 different instances, he uses the word hell. In 11 of the 12 instances, the translation of the word he uses for hell is a word called Gehenna, G-H-E-N-N-A, Gehenna. Gehenna was a very real place in the times of Jesus. Gehenna translated meant the Valley of Hinnon. The Valley of Hinnon is a very real place. In fact, Nancy's going to show you a picture of it as it exists today. You can go and look at the valley of Hinnon, which is Gehenna, which is what Jesus used to describe as hell. That's hell. It's an image of hell. And I'm going to explain to you why. The Bible start, first starts speaking of this valley in 2 Chronicles 28, 1 through 3. Because something horrible was happening in that valley. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, you know King David, you, we all know King David, right? Or we teach our children stories about King David. Unlike King David, his father, he didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and also made idols for worshiping the Baals, the pagan gods. 
And he burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnon. He burned sacrifices in Gehenna. Well, what kind of sacrifices did he burn? Did he burn like, like pheasants? Did he burn, you know, like, like uh, you know, goats? And he sacrificed children in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And so in this valley that's outside of the walls of the camp of Jerusalem, it becomes this place, this place of idolatry and, and idol worship and idol sacrifice. Unbelievably so, it becomes common in this valley to sacrifice children to pagan gods. Now, if you're wondering what this God of love might think of this, he thinks of it what you would think he thinks of it. He, he tells us through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah comes and he gives a word to the, to the Israelites. He says, the people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They've set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and they defiled it. They've built the high places of Topeth in the valley of Ben-Hanan in Gehenna to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I didn't command. It didn't even enter my mind. So God says to these people, listen, you need to beware. The dairies are coming, declares the Lord. When people are no longer going to call it the valley of Ben-Hinnon, but the valley of slaughter, because they're going to bury the dead in Topeth until there's no more room. And then the carcasses of, of these people will become food for the birds and wild animals. There will be no more anyone to frighten them away. I am going to bring, God says, I'm going to bring an end to this, to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of the bride and the bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem because this land, this valley of Ben-Hanan, this Gehenna, this hell will become detestable. And God is pretty good at following up on what he says is going to happen. And so the story, the redemptive story of God tells us in 2 Kings 23.10, he raises up a man called Josiah, and Josiah does exactly what God says. He desecrates Topath, which was in the valley of Ben-Hanan, so that no one could sacrifice his son or daughter any longer in the fire to, to Malak. So what happens to a a cursed piece of land. What becomes a, 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 of Gehenna? Because it now has this reputation of being just this accursed place, this, this black place. Well, it becomes a place that's kind of familiar to you and I. It becomes, in a deep valley, just like we see in Guatemala, it becomes a giant garbage dump. And the people of Israel would throw their garbage into the burning fires in this garbage dump called Gehenna. One writer described it like this. He says, It became for Jerusalem a garbage dump. People tossed their garbage and waste into the valley. There was a fire there, burning constantly to consume the trash. Wild animals fought over the scraps of food along the edges of the heap, and when they fought, their teeth would make a gnashing sound. 
Gehenna was the place with the gnashing of teeth where the fire never went out. You see, Gehenna was an actual place. Jesus' listeners would have been familiar with that. And Jesus chose this imagery not because that was hell, but because this is what hell is like. It's essentially, if you ever driven home on Route 80 on a summer Friday night, you drive home and you say, this, that Route 80 was like a parking lot. It wasn't a parking lot, but it gives some imagery. It fills in what it was like. Jesus was saying, how can I describe the horror of hell? The thing you're most familiar with is what's going on, this constant fire, this wailing and gnashing of teeth that's going on outside this camp. This is, not, this is not a good place to be, right? And you might say to yourself, well, why would a good God in creating all of humanity as he lays out day one and day two and, and in Genesis at the end of every day he says this is good, where's hell in that story? I don't see hell there. How could hell possibly good be good? Great question. Jesus answers it when he teaches on hell one other time. Many of you know the parable of the sheep and goats. Matthew 25, starting in 31. Talking about hell again. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he's going to sit on his glorious throne and all the nations are going to be gathered before him and he's going to separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom, prepared for you since the creation of the world. The kingdom of God, quote-unquote heaven, has been prepared for human beings, for followers of God, for those getting life from God, from the very creation of, of, the, of the world. I'm going to jump down. You know the story about why, many of you know the story about, about why there's a separation here. But in verse 41, Jesus goes on. He says, then he's going to say to the people on his left, depart from me, you who are accursed, into the eternal fire, right, the garbage dump burning, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Not from the foundations of the world. You see, the eternal fires were never created for people. The eternal fire was created for sin. This image of the garbage dump. For example, one of Satan's name in Scripture Beelzebub. Anybody want to know what Beelzebub means? Lord of the Flies. You ever walk around the garbage dump in Guatemala? Loaded with flies. It was never meant for you and I. But in our brokenness, in, in our humanity, we're on a trajectory. The whole scripture is a story about man and choices. God did not create you as like Steve showed you that, that, that teddy bear last week that you push the button and either says, I, it, when you push it, it says, I love you. God didn't create you that way. He gives you free will and conscious. And our choices have trajectories in our lives. We are every day, day by day, becoming, living out of that new life of Christ that's available to us. Or if you're not living out of that new life that's available to you, you are, and when you are, you're becoming more loving, more giving, more like Jesus. But when you're not, you are becoming more broken. In fact, Jesus at one point says to people, you're becoming not more like your father God, but more like your father the devil. It's not just fire that the scriptures discuss. 
See, it's, it's imagery. People in hell aren't in, 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 in fire. Jesus is saying it's kind of like this. There's another imagery. It's, it's darkness. Hell's described in the scripture as darkness. Not just darkness, by the way. Utter darkness. Why would, why would that be a description of hell? Because John tells us that God is light. And in them is no darkness. See, we think of like a pitchfork and a, a red-suited guy and fire and dark and pitchforks. That's not what hell is like. Unfortunately, it's much worse than that. Because hell is a place where man and evil and Satan are essentially, just as the Scripture said, they're given over to themselves. They're unrestrained any longer by God or conscience or the Holy Spirit. There, there's nothing that is going to keep them from becoming fully, in a sense, broken. Because man will continue in this life, in the next, apart from tying into the new life of Christ, to continue to choose slavery and death. So, maybe finally just to answer the question this morning directly, right? Hell is not a place that God created to put man. You need to understand that. Hell is not a place that God created to send bad people to. Hell is a place that man chooses. You and I meant to be connected to God, meant to get our life from him. It's the only place, the only place where life is available is from God. Hell is the place where you are ultimately fully, completely cut off from God. And the reason I think Jesus is so frank in his warnings about it is we've become so used to our fallenness and so used to our brokenness, we don't see it. Now, I'm probably going to get in trouble for this a little bit, but I'm going to show. I, I was sitting at home, and I'm like, how do I, how do I communicate the, the trajectory of our decisions? The trajectory of what's going on in our lives. One decision, in a sense, we're almost not accountable for, right? Which is that we all bo- are born into these bodies of sin. Anybody know off the top of your head, what does the Scripture say is the penalty for sin? Is, is death. And thus, we're all dying. Now, we're doing it slowly. It's not that shocking to us because, you know, day by day, we don't see it. But, but we have this picture here that kind of depicts it. Here's young, virile me. You see, my life is on a trajectory. This is my brokenness played before you in a sense. This is where I'm going. Now, the truth of what the Scripture says is, this is the outside. This is what's happening to the outside. But on the inside, you can live out of a new life source that is restoring you day after day after day. I, I, I was at the, the deathbed of a friend a couple months ago, and he, he was very concerned about the impending death. And I said, you need to understand, that new life that you've embraced in Christ, that, that, that hope, that's the life that's in there. That goes on and on and on. This doesn't touch it. It only touches the outside. 
But as Farah said, we've gotten so good to not seeing the trajectory of our decisions in this life and into eternity that, that it's not even kind of on the radar screen. So what do we do to hide it? Well, we do things like uh, make ourselves uh, look better. We, a lot of makeup and a lot of plastic surgery. If, uh, I said, well, who could I find that would kind of be a, a celebrity that would kind of show the aging process? And uh, so I was Googling some of, uh, some of that, and I came across uh, my friend Mick Jagger. It's funny, but it's not, right? I mean, even cultural icons are not what they used to be, right? Take a look at this. There's Barbie. There's something going on in us. And there's something going on, there's a trajectory that our decisions, why would we think if there's a trajectory for our decisions in this life, there's not a trajectory for our decisions in the next? So as I looked at that and I said, how do we show a trajectory for our decisions? I was trying to see, see, see the best thing. And I'm going to show you some pictures here that will bother you or disturb you a little bit, but... I have to be okay with that because of the seriousness of the topic. In the UK, they did a study on before and after of people that became addicted to methamphetamines. And so I found the, the pictures of what, what these, the trajectory of decisions do just in this life. And they're disturbing. And Nancy's just going to roll them up a little bit, and we won't keep them up there for long. Hold, just stop a second. 27 to 30, three years. Keep going, Nancy. 48, 49, 52, 53, 36, 39, 31, 33. That's enough. C.S. Lewis described this concept of trajectory of of our lives heading towards God in this new life or heading into complete brokenness and separation from God this way. He said, you remember that in the parable that we just talked about, the saved go to a place prepared for them while the damned go to a place never made for them at all. To enter heaven, Lewis said, is to become more human than you've ever succeeded in being on earth, fully alive, fully connected to God, full of life and the way you were meant to be. To enter hell is to be banished from humanity. What casts itself into hell is not a man, it is its remains. To be complete man means to have the passions obedient to the will and the will offered to God. To have been a man, to be an ex-man, would presumably mean to consist of a will utterly centered in its self-passions and utterly uncontrolled by the will. It is, of course, impossible to imagine what the consciousness of such a creature would be like. There may be a truth to the saying that, quote, hell is hell, not from its own point of view, but from the heavenly point of view. You see, your life is on a trajectory, and so is everybody's you know. We either begin to live out of the new life of Christ, out of this new source, and we become every day, day by day, a little bit more like Christ, dying on the outside, but made more alive every day on the inside. You ever meet somebody like this? Or we're dying on the outside, and every day we're becoming a little less human, and we're following a trajectory that leads to Gehenna. What remains of you after cutting, being cut off from God is what is in hell. You're left over. 
It's not people trapped in bad circumstances. Essentially, you are trapped inside your fully broken self, having free reign to pursue whatever it is you gave your soul to, and you will be Lord of the Flies. And that's the teaching of Jesus on hell. It's, it's a real possibility. We see it on earth. And it's a real possibility for eternity. But, I'm wrapping up with this, but you got to hear this. God did not create hell for you human beings. This is not God's will for you or for anyone. In, the, in fact, the Bible says it's God's will that none would perish Nobody hates this more or is willing to suffer more or pay a higher price more than God to save you and I from the trajectory of a life heading to hell. That is the truth of the gospel of God. 2 Samuel says this, like water spilled on the ground which can't be recovered, so we must die that's what those pictures were. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person doesn't remain banished from him. God doesn't take life away. He devises ways so that you would not be estranged from him. God seeks. He pursues. He knocks. God devises ways. He stays up nights. He sends moments and things and people and dreams to come into your life so that you might change, that you might know life here, that you might know life then. He sends beautiful families with four kids off to countries like Paraguay. He sends young kids off to that could, to, could do anything, to Costa Rica and, and to huts in Africa. He says entire churches in Mendham to garbage dumps in Guatemala. And ultimately he sends his son to earth, his precious son, to get us, to rescue us, to teach us, and to warn us. And to bear for us the reality of death and sin for all who would follow and to bring life and to save, Jesus saves. And if you're thinking, like I do, I can't stand the thought of this, especially for people that I care about, you get a tiny glimpse of the heart that God has for humanity and why he allowed his son to come and live and die and suffer on a cross. And each one of us, with the way we live before our friends and our workmates and our spouses and our kids, each one of us with our lives, we push people a little bit more towards God. We nudge them a little bit closer to hell. And so at the end of the day, despite the music we sing here and the kids' programs we put on and the youth group that meets tonight and the small groups that meet all week, the truth is we exist as a church not just to serve ourselves, not even to do good things. We're here because human beings have souls. They have eternities. They need to be rescued. There is much at stake, and Jesus is still saving people. We have a mission. We're missionaries. I'll end with this story and some news. A couple... Uh, Christmases ago, um, 
up here doing what we do on Christmas Eve. And, you know, a lot of our talented people put a lot of time into Christmas. Some of you are out there. And uh, uh, about, I don't know, a couple months after Christmas, um, a woman I, I didn't really know came up to me and she said she was crying. She's here today. I won't point her out, but I told her I saw her over coffee. I said, we're going to be talking about you. And uh, she was crying. I said, what's the matter? And she says, you don't understand what this church did. And I said, well, you know, usually I go, uh-oh. <laughs> and she said, uh, my father was not a believer. We talked to him about it for years, and he just had no interest. And, and so we brought him to Christmas Eve. And he kind of came in, kind of like dragging his feet about it. And when he left, when we got out in the parking lot, he looked at, he looked at me and he said, you know, I have to rethink everything now based on that. And she said, so we started talking to my dad over some months, and uh, we gave him a book, and, and, and we talked to him about God, and my father came to a decision that he wanted to follow Christ. And shortly thereafter, he was playing golf, because that was his favorite thing to do, and he died on the 16th green. He had a heart attack and died on the 16th green. And she was crying, and she said, my dad is in the kingdom of God because of Christmas Eve and because of, 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 of what you guys do here. And that story just, it, it, you know, if I had to pick one story about what changes, why I do this, why we do this, that's it. And so, you know, every September we start thinking about Christmas because, you know, it's hard to retell the story every year in a way that captures people's hearts. And one of the things I came across this year was um, that Charles Dickens, there's a debate about if he was a Christian or not, but most of his writings were, were kind of paralleling biblical topics and truths. And so the famous Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, was actually written as a parallel in many ways to the gospel. And so I said, well, that's kind of interesting, right? Maybe we could tie into A Christmas Carol for the Christmas and preach through those components of The Christmas Carol. So the first thing I want you to know is, for the next four weeks, starting next week, we're going to look at the components in A Christmas Carol. We're calling this The Four Ghosts of Christmas. We're going to look at the four ghosts of Christmas and how they impact our lives and, and, how, and how they were used in that story, um, the ghosts and what they did and, and, and how it relates to our own lives. That's kind of cool. But I'm still thinking, how do we, how do we reach this community, these 92,962 people that sit around here that really need life now and life eternal? And I got these people, and I think they would like to help. And I know my story, my friend Terry, and what it did for her dad. And so we were sitting in a meeting. I said, what if we did something on Christmas Eve, and we, we, we did a Christmas carol, and we, we used some dramatic presentations from a Christmas carol and some of our talented people. And uh, then, you know, I would then talk about the gospel, and we'd go back and forth and re relate the story to relating, you know, the gospel. And... Uh, Tim Berry uh, looked at me, he said, I got a great idea. He said, why don't you call Jim Brewer? Um, I'll pause on this. If you don't know who Jim Brewer is, uh, <laughs> that says a lot about Jim Brewer. But uh, if you don't know who Jim Brewer is, Jim is uh, one of the top 100 stand-up comedians of all time. He was on Saturday Night Live. Uh, he was known as Goat Boy back in the day of the 90s. Uh, he just was, a, you know, a couple of you were at the Borgata last week. He just sold out the Borgata. Jim is the, look, frankly, Jim is the most famous guy in town. Um, and, and so Tim goes, why don't you call Jim and see if he'd be Scrooge on Christmas Eve? And I'm going, well, that's never going to work. That's a stupid idea. And so, uh, so sure enough, I was having coffee with Jim, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to ask him. I said, hey, what would you think about, uh, you're trying to reach the community on Christmas Eve. What would you think if, like, we put on, like, a Christmas carol and we did vignettes and we, we showed how this story related to the gospel and we made it really funny at one point and really poignant at another point and, and you, you could be Scrooge. 
And he looked at me, and I thought he was going to think, say, dude, that would destroy my career. And uh, he said, when do we start? Um, so, uh, we have this little graphic up here. Next week, look, I need, I need you to care about people's souls. We need to care about people's souls. We need to take a little personal risk. And so what we're trying to provide on Christmas Eve, this holy night, is an opportunity for you to unabashedly invite a friend to this. Now, you might be saying, dude, I can't get a seat in here on Christmas Eve as it is. What are you talking about? So what we've done is we are adding another service. We're going to have three services on Christmas Eve with Jim Brewer starring as Scrooge. Uh, Rena, my friend Rena, is writing this. Uh, we are going to start getting you material to market this to your friends and to your neighbors starting next week. Um, we are going to together use Christmas Eve again to try to reach those in the community God is trying to reach. I think it's going to be funny and beautiful and poignant. But we need to enter the fight. We need to get back on mission. We need to care about souls. So next week, we start on a journey towards Christmas Eve. Pray with me, would you? Lord, not a fun talk, but I can't walk away from it. I can't walk away from it for my family. I can't walk away from it for my friends. I can't walk away from it for this church. And we can't walk away from it for this town. Lord, we need to reach Guatemala. We need to reach Paraguay. And we need to reach Mendham and Chester. So God, our prayer, my prayer over our people is that you would convince us and convict us of the truth of what the separation of God looks like. It's amazing that we can see it on earth, but somehow we think that it has no eternal ramification. Would you convict us of the trajectory of, of the brokenness of humanity? Would you increase in our sight the joy of our salvation that while we are passing away on the outside, day by day we are renewed on the inside? And would you help us to see this Christmas people the way you do? In the holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen.